welcome to June's uh, aid seminar today. Um, just for a little background information of our code number today is DA58. Text that to the office. Small letters or capital? Uh, D and A are small letters, and then 58. Um, what's that? Always lowercase, just as an Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Okay, always lowercase. Um, and for um, credit stage, I need to attend 80% of the program. Neither the speaker or any of the uh, planning committee members have identified any financial interest or relationship with commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. We appreciate that. Um, so, I want to welcome um, uh, Dr. Luby, who is a nurse scientist at the Yvonne Munn Center for Nursing Research, an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and an investigator in the program of nutritional metabolism within the neuroendocrine unit at MGH. And this is a unit that we refer a lot of patients to over the years, so it's great to have her expertise here. Um, she received her BSN from UBM. MSM from MGH, um, Institute of Health Professions, and a PhD from Boston College. And her program of uh, research evaluates endocrine disorders and cardiovascular disease among individuals with HIV, particularly in women's populations. Um, she's also conducted studies related to menopause and cardiovascular disease in relation to reproductive aging and strategies to educate and enhance research participation among women with HIV. Dr. Luby has received funding from NIH. Uh, uh, Harvard Center for AIDS Research, before the Office of Family. She's in numerous publications and presented research both nationally and internationally. Dr. Ruby is also a dedicated volunteer, uh, health educator, and a member of AIDS Community Service Organizations throughout Massachusetts, and has been recognized for her dedication to community service for individuals living with HIV. So, warmly welcome, Dr. Ruby. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you for inviting me to present today. Um, as mentioned, I work at Mass General Hospital, and for the past 16 years, I've worked within a research program known as the Program in Nutritional Metabolism under the leadership of Dr. Dr. Stephen Greenspoon, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, and together, we have conducted a number of investigations along with our colleagues, investigating cardiometabolic disorders associated with HIV. So today, I will present an update on our research and others, and an overview on metabolic conditions associated with HIV in the post-combined antiretroviral therapy era. I will review mechanisms of cardiovascular disease risk in HIV, including sex-specific mechanisms of CVD, and then conclude with implications for clinical practice, including clinical trials. So more than 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV infection. And in 2013, an estimated 47,000 were newly diagnosed with the virus. Increasing numbers of individuals with HIV are living longer, especially those with access to ART, and progressing towards advanced age. Also, individuals aged 45 and older accounted for almost a quarter of new HIV diagnoses in 2014 in the U.S. Therefore, greater attention has been paid recently, particularly in research, and methods of prevention and management among those aging with the virus. We know among those without HIV that aging may be associated with the development of comorbid conditions. And although HIV viral suppression 
and stable immune function may be, may be observed among those with HIV. Increasing numbers are experiencing conditions such as cardiovascular disease, kidney and liver disease, bone loss, frailty, cognitive impairment, and cancer before the age of 50 related to HIV in some of the early ART. And today, I'm going to focus on some of the metabolic and cardiovascular comorbidities. The advent of antiretroviral therapy in the late 1980s was an incredible scientific and clinical breakthrough that continued to flourish as more agents and new classes of agents became available. Between 1996 and 1997, shortly after guidelines supported the use of highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART, a dramatic decline in mortality rates were observed in the U.S., and for many, HIV became a less acute and more chronic illness. But shortly after HART became available, a different metabolic presentation was observed among HIV-infected individuals. And I distinctly remember seeing a patient in clinic with this new clinical presentation in 1999, I think it was about 1999. And after sharing his HIV viral load and CD4 count with him, he looked at me and said, people tell me I beat AIDS. I'm lucky to be alive. But look at me. I am a monster. What he was referring to came to be known as HIV lipodystrophy syndrome, an abnormal redistribution of fat characterized by an increase in abdominal fat, sometimes a hump on the back of the neck, and loss of subcutaneous fat in the face, limbs, and buttocks. So what was this, and what were the metabolic complications? On the outside, you see a large amount of central adiposity or visceral fat. But if you look on the inside, via cross-sectional CAT scan of the abdomen, you see an unusual presentation. The bottom panel is a control subject without lipodystrophy. We have two types of fat in the abdomen, a thick visceral fat in the inner part, which is heavy and protects our organs. And on the outside, we have subcutaneous fat, which is the fat that tends to fluctuate, the fat that we can pinch it in. But when you look at somebody with lipodystrophy syndrome, you see a very different presentation. The amount of visceral fat is almost quadrupled in some cases. And the amount of subcutaneous fat is almost completely disappeared. Early studies from our group and others demonstrated that lipodystrophy syndrome is associated with insulin resistance and diabetes, elevated triglyceride and lipid levels, and also that increased central adiposity was an independent predictor of cardiovascular disease. This early study from Dr. Conley Hamigan and colleagues evaluated the prevalence of diabetes and impaired glucose tolerance among a cohort of HIV-infected individuals with and without lipodystrophy syndrome compared to non-HIV-infected patients that were carefully matched by age, gender, and BMI. Those with HIV and lipo, as indicated in the purple bar, had significantly higher prevalence of both diabetes and impaired glucose tolerance compared to both control groups. And in this study, patients with lipodystrophy were also more likely to have eleva elevated triglyceride levels and reduced HDL levels compared to the controls. Further, Hepatic triglyceride accumulation is strongly associated with visceral adipose tissue, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is highly prevalent and seen in about 30 to 40% of individuals with HIV. In the context of cardiovascular disease risk, 
The top portion of this slide shares findings from a study by Dr. Triant and colleagues using the Partners Patient Data Registry that included 3,852 HIV-positive patients compared to over 1 million non-infected patients. The HIV cohort had significantly higher proportions of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia compared to that of the non-HIV cohort. So the burning question at this time was, why was this increased prevalence of body composition changes and CBD risk observed in these patients? And because of the association between the timing of heart and these clinical changes, many focused on the role ART may play. What was shown was that select ART agents were linked with diabetes, particularly early agents, and worsening glucose homeostasis was observed mediated through multiple mechanisms. Also, most ART increases LDL, again, the early regimens, and regimen-specific effects were observed on HDL and triglycerides. However, many of the ART regimens commonly prescribed today have neutral effects on traditional metabolic risk factors for coronary heart disease. Several large cohort studies have consistently shown that the rate of MI, or coronary heart disease, is 1.5 to two-fold greater in HIV versus non-HIV patients. Moreover, this increased risk is not solely accounted for by typical risk factors associated with CBD, such as gender, dyslipidemia, and many researchers have demonstrated that the risk for heart disease remains even after controlling for known traditional risk factors. As coronary heart disease is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in HIV, further exploration of potential non-traditional risk factors implicated in CBD and HIV warrants attention. One of the leading hypotheses today being explored is looking at the role of persistent inflammation associated with HIV and how this may affect cardiovascular disease risk. And a seminal study that supports this hypothesis is the Strategies for Management of Antiretroviral Therapy, or the SMART study. In this study, over 5,000 HIV-positive patients with a stable CD4 count were randomized to a drug conservation group, or essentially a break or drug holiday from antiretroviral therapy, or a viral suppression group, a group that would continue to take their ART as prescribed. The primary endpoint was the development of an opportunistic infection or death and the secondary endpoint was major CVD reading <coughs> hepatic disease. But what was found among the drug conservation group was that the hazard ratio for death from any cause was 1.8, and the hazard ratio for major CVD, renal, and hepatic disease was 1.7, both significantly higher than the viral suppression group. And perhaps the biggest finding from this study was that adverse events associated with ART are not reduced with medication <coughs> interruption and that viral suppression may reduce non-AIDS-associated illnesses, including CVD. So HIV is associated with persistent inflammation. HIV may impact CVD risk directly or indirectly through multiple pathways. Basically, HIV infection results in persistent viral replication, which may impact chronic activation of select monocyte and T-cell subtypes, as well as endothelial cell activation, resulting in CVD. Also, HIV infection results in the depletion of CD4 cells, leading to microbial translocation, particularly in the presence of co-infection with HCV or CMV, 
resulting in chronic activation of select monocyte and T-cell subtypes, resulting then in systemic inflammation, altered lipid metabolism, and altered platelet reactivity. I share this slide as it presents an overview of markers of immune activation and inflammation that have been associated with CVD risk in HIV, including atherosclerotic plaque burden, endothelial dysfunction, and immune aging that may influence the development of age-related diseases. I share this slide with you as current research has focused on evaluating ways in which HIV may affect these markers and enhance overall risk for CVD in the context of HIV. Specifically, how HIV may adversely influence pathogenic processes that contribute to the development of atherosclerotic plaque by targeting some of these monocytes. Katie Fitch and colleagues conducted a study that looked at the relationship or differences in immune activation in subclinical atherosclerosis between HIV-infected and non-infected men and women. Essentially, it was an evaluation of immune activation markers, including soluble CD163 and plaque phenotypes among men and women. There are 162 HIV-positive individuals and 71 individuals without HIV. All four groups were matched on traditional CBD risk factors by using the Framingham risk score calculation, and all participants were at low risk for developing heart disease. Soluble CD163 is a monocyte macrophage receptor that has been associated with inflammation. And non-calcified coronary plaque is also known as the vulnerable plaque that has greater potential to rupture. If you look at the first panel there, the soluble CD163, what was found was that the HIV-positive men had significantly higher soluble CD163 than the HIV-negative men, and that is depicted in the green pattern. However, HIV-positive women had significantly higher soluble CD163 than the HIV-positive men and the HIV-negative men and women. Looking over at non-calcified plaque segments, the HIV-positive women had significantly higher percentage of plaque segments compared with HIV-positive men and HIV-negative men and women. So again, suggesting, suggesting that there may be inflammatory markers that may be associated with HIV incurring non-traditional risk for cardiovascular disease. <coughs> HIV-infected individuals have demonstrated increased prevalence and degree of coronary atherosclerosis compared to those without HIV. These represent vulnerable plaques that may be more likely to rupture and result in cardiovascular events, including MI and sudden cardiac death. Further, this high-risk morphology plaque has been shown to be most prevalent among those with increased arterial inflammation measured by PET-CT in research. And increased arterial inflammation has been associated with increased immune activation among HIV-infected individuals with good virologic control. Collectively, these studies have demonstrated that HIV may modulate different pathways, resulting in increased markers of immune activation and inflammation that influence the development of atherosclerosis, including high-risk morphology, coronary atherosclerotic plaque. Now looking at lifestyle and mental health, two other very important variables in the HIV population. Smoking. 
Smoking prevalence is 40 to 75% in U.S. adults with HIV. However, some studies have shown that the risk of CBD events decreases progressively with each year of smoking cessation for one to three plus years. But CBD risk remains higher in those former smokers than that of never smokers. In the context of diet, prior studies have shown that those with HIV tend to have increased intake of total fat, saturated fat, and cholesterol, and also in exercise, markedly reduced cardiovascular fitness when compared to non-HIV-infected individuals. Further, CBD risk may be enhanced by the already precarious state of psychosocial burden commonly experienced by those with HIV, including mental health diagnoses, as well as social circumstances that often increase stress and negatively impact quality of life, both of which have been associated with CBD risk in non-HIV infected individuals. So it is very important to consider these factors when assessing and addressing CBD risk in this population. So, I have reviewed so far that HIV, and potentially some of the earlier medicines to treat HIV, may have both direct and indirect effects on cardiovascular disease. Traditional risk factors, including dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, or some of the metabolic changes associated with these conditions, age, genetics, family history, smoking and lifestyle, and then non-traditional HIV-specific factors, like chronic immune activation and immunosenesis. But what about female or sex-specific influences on cardiovascular disease in individuals with HIV? It is well known at midlife that women experience menopause. And this slide describes symptoms and conditions commonly associated with menopause, including cardiovascular disease risk. Non-HIV infected women are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease during menopause lost to, due to the loss of the protective effects of estrogen. However, a large-scale study evaluating the impact on estrogen loss and reproductive aging on CBD among women with HIV has not been published. Dr. Markella Zani, a colleague of mine in the neuroendocrine unit at MGH, and I did conduct an investigation to look at differences in subclinical coronary atherosclerotic plaque and markers of immune activation among HIV-infected women characterized by ovarian reserve and menopause status. We looked at 49 positive women and 25 non-HIV-infected women without known CBD from that Fitch study that I reviewed a couple slides earlier. The mean age was 47, and the women were similar in race with no difference in traditional CBD risk at baseline. We looked at their coronary uh, CT data, immune parameters, and we also retrieved data on menopause status. We were able to obtain from their uh, you know, CRS uh, data last menstrual period. However, for that study, when it was conducted, blood tests or the blood was not collected in accordance with the menstrual cycle. So we were unable to accurately measure estrogen and FSH levels because of that reason, not having blood collected in accordance with the timing of their menstrual period. So we looked into a marker of ovarian reserve that is known as anti-malarian hormone. And we had processes, samples processed for AMH levels. AMH is secreted by ovarian granulosa cells and is a menstrual cycle independent marker of ovarian reserve. 
AMH levels reflect the size of the follicle pool and decline as women age and approach menopause. And AMH levels are measured in plasma. So we took the women and we categorized them based on their date of last menstrual period and AMH level as being premenopausal or postmenopausal. So looking at the HIV-infected women specifically, women who were HIV positive with reduced ovarian reserve or an undetectable AMH level had a higher prevalence of coronary atherosclerotic plaque, 52 versus 6%, and non-calcified plaque, which was that dangerous plaque, 48 versus 6%. And these differences were significant. The HIV-positive women with reduced ovarian reserve also had higher levels of log-soluble CD163 and log-MCP1 compared to premenopausal women with measurable AMH. Reduced ovarian reserve related to non-calcified plaque, controlling for traditional CBD risk factors and soluble CD163 levels. So our conclusions in this study were that HIV-infected women with reduced ovarian reserve have increased subclinical coronary atherosclerotic plaque compared with premenopausal women with measurable AMH, controlling for CBD risk factors, including age and immune activation. Markers of immune activation increased across the reproductive aging spectrum in the women with HIV, suggesting that reduced ovarian reserve may contribute to CBD risk burden in women with HIV. What about hot flashes? Hot flashes is a cardinal symptom of menopause. In fact, among non-HIV-infected women, 80% of women will experience hot flashes <coughs> during the menopausal period. Emerging research among non-HIV-infected women suggests associations between hot flashes and cardiovascular disease risk. Again, this is in non-infected women. The study of women's health across the nation, or the SWAN study, uh, detected an association between the presence of hot flashes and increased aortic calcification in coronary heart disease. Also, in a separate study, an association between hot flash frequency and increased carotid intimidium thickness was observed. Also among non-HAV-infected women, recent studies, more recent studies, are starting to look at hot flash severity, or the relationship between severe hot flashes and CBD outcomes. One study, published in 2010, found that endothelial function, but not carotid IMT, is affected early in menopause and associated with severity of hot flashes. Also, increased vascular inflammation in early menopause is associated with hot flash severity. Now, I raise this because I mentioned, or it was mentioned in my introduction, that I do a lot of volunteering in the community, particularly with women with HIV. And when I started doing that about 16 years ago, a lot of times they were talking about their concerns with lipodystrophy syndrome and the body changes that they were experiencing, resulting in body image disturbance and some of the comorbid conditions that I mentioned. But time went on. And so I've been with some of these patients in the community for 16 years. And I'm getting older, they're getting older. And a lot of our conversations began to center not just about metabolic concerns, but about menopause. What is menopause? What's happening to my body? I don't understand. You know, one woman had said to me, I woke, I woke up in a puddle of sweat, and all I could think of is, my age. I have AIDS now. I'm going to die. And I had no idea what was happening. So we began to talk a little bit about what menopause was and what happens to a woman during the menopause transition and what a hot flash was and what mood swings are and how these things can happen. 
And so I promised them that I would go back to my desk and do a little recon on HIV and menopause. And then when I saw them the following month, I would share my update. Well, when I went back to my desk, this was in 2009, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing about HIV and menopause except for a few very helpful review articles, um, but, but nothing of, of great substance. So we decided to conduct a study looking at hot flash severity and differences between HIV-positive women and HIV-negative women. Specifically, we recruited 66 women, 33 HIV-negative, 33 HIV-positive, that were matched by race, BMI, and menstrual patterns. These women had to be in the perimenopausal transition because it's known among non-infected women that hot flesh severity or hot, the presence of hot flashes tend to be more intense during the perimenopause when hormone levels are fluctuating versus in the late postmenopause and premenopause. And we decided to evaluate, as mentioned, hot flash severity and also interference um, in, of hot flashes with activities of daily living and quality of life. We conducted a survey, we brought women in, so this is part of the study, we also looked at metabolic things. But as part of the um, study, we had women complete two surveys. One was known as the menopause rating scale, which is an 11-item questionnaire that assesses presence and severity of menopause symptoms, including hot flash severity. And the other was the hot flash-related daily interference questionnaire, which is a 10-item questionnaire that is used to determine impact of hot flashes on daily activities and quality of life. With regard to hot flash severity, uh, we found, first of all, this is just in the second bar here. I don't have a pointer, but we're looking at item one here. We found that the women with HIV reported significantly more severe hot flashes compared to women without HIV. But we also found the overall total MRS scores to be significantly higher in HIV-positive women compared to the HIV-negative women, with the most discrepancies observed between hot flashes and some of the mental health concerns, including sleep problems, depressed mood, irritability, and anxiety. When we looked at the degree to which hot flashes impact quality of life or interfere with quality of life, the HIV-positive women had scores that were four times higher than the HIV-negative women. And for every single item on that, on that scale, the HIV-infected women report, reported worse scores or greater interference of their hot flashes with almost all aspects of their quality of life universally. We follow these women at baseline in 12 months, and we're in the process of analyzing the 12-month data currently. The interesting thing is that there are no studies to date to look at the relationship between hot flash severity and cardiovascular risk in HIV. So this is a very ripe area of interest and potentially another sex-specific risk factor for cardiovascular disease in the growing number of aging HIV-infected women. So what about clinical uh, considerations? There are multiple challenges in the assessment of CBD prevention in HIV. See, they're excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> Understanding the optimal timing and use of antiretroviral therapy to maximize immune function and potentially minimize metabolic events. CBD risk assessment. More data are needed to determine the appropriateness of current risk identification strategies in patients with HIV. Some of these score calculations that are used in non-infected folks might not and do not account for some of the non-traditional CBD risk factors that I mentioned early on in the presentation. There also is a need to establish safe and effective strategy and guidelines for primary CBD prevention, 
especially for patients with substantial clinical disease and there are not, that are not going to be detected or identified by current algorithms. There is also a need to develop an intervention that addresses both traditional and immune-related factors since we saw that immune activation and inflammation is a unique um, risk factor for CVD in this population. So to start, it's obviously very important to target and provide ongoing education on modifiable risk factors, smoking cessation, diet and exercise, stress reduction, support around substance abuse and recovery, and education on HIV and heart disease. This is something we try to do very frequently for our population um, because a lot of individuals are living with HIV, particularly those who are living with the virus for 10, 15, 15 years, are not aware of their risk for cardiovascular disease compared to the non-infected population. And also should be included on here, counseling and treatment for mental health concerns. In terms of traditional risk modification strategies, obviously treating hypertension and diabetes, the use of aspirin, aspirin or statins, other lipid-lowering strategies as well. And then in terms of immune modulators, the use of antiretroviral therapy to help dampen immune activation, as well as the use of statins. There has been some studies, small studies, in HIV-infected individuals that suggest that statin therapy, in addition to lowering LDL, may also dampen immune um, activation in this population. But there are considerations. Do you treat traditional risk factors separately, or do you treat the underlying problem? HIV lipodystrophy, with its increased in abdominal adiposity, or fat, is a driver of metabolic dysregulation. We also know that those with HIV lipodystrophy tend to have low levels of growth hormone. Tezomorelin is a growth hormone releasing hormone, GHRH, analog that is FDA approved currently for the treatment of HIV lipodystrophy to reduce visceral fat. It is not FDA approved for the treatment of cardiovascular disease risk reduction um, or reduction of liver fat, but studies are ongoing to evaluate the impact of tezomorelin on CHD risk including reducing liver fat in this population. Statins. Statins effectively lower LDL in, in HIV-infected patients, and studies suggest that statins dampen immune activation independent of lipid lowering. They also tend to be generally well tolerated. But more information is needed to determine the use of statins for preventative therapy in HIV. Also, it is unknown how statins will uniquely work in HIV. Its effects specifically on inflammatory pathways and are there going to be different sex-specific responses with regard to statin therapy. Therefore, more research is needed. One study that is tackling these very questions is known as a randomized trial to prevent vascular events in HIV. Reprieve is a multi-center randomized control trial testing primary cardiovascular disease prevention strategy among 6,500 individuals living with HIV at over 100 sites in the U.S. and internationally. And I believe this study is greater than 50% enrolled at this point. The hypothesis of Reprieve is that statin therapy will prevent atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease-related major adverse cardiovascular events and HIV-infected persons on ART in whom traditional CVD risk is not significantly increased. Reprieve 
In Reprieve, patients are randomized to receive patabastatin, 4 milligrams versus placebo. Patabastatin was chosen because it's a moderate-intensity statin that has been shown not to interact with any ART. It also has been shown to have net neutral effects on glucose. This is just a general overview of Reprieve. The time of enrollment is about 2.5 years, and patients are followed for the primary and secondary endpoints over a six-year period of time. So we're hoping that this study may help provide some important answers with regard to a CVD prevention strategy in this population. Dr. Zani and I are uh, very fortunate to have a study that is fully integrated into the main reprieve trial that will look at sex-specific mechanisms of risk and cardiac risk and risk uh, reduction strategies among the reprieve trial participants. Our primary aim is to assess the relationship between reproductive aging, immune activation, and cardiovascular disease risk and risk reduction among women with HIV. Interestingly enough, we also were very conscious to include a supplemental aim to our study, um, recognizing that a study is only as strong as the number of people who enter it and stay in it, and that women are historically underrepresented in clinical trials, particularly HIV clinical trials. We wanted to make sure that if we were going to look at an aim that was going to detect sex-specific differences, that we also implemented a strategy to design, implement, and test the efficacy of an education-based awareness campaign to augment female enrollment into the reprieve trial. In order to design our recruitment and education strategy around heart disease, we went to the experts, and we conducted a community-based pilot study among a community sample of women with, with and at increased risk for HIV to explore strategies that improve awareness of research studies as well as factors that enhance research participation, including sustained enrollment in longitudinal trials. So we distributed a survey to a community sample of, of women, like I mentioned. 40 completed the survey with a mean age of 53. In this population, they identified best methods for learning about a study is talking to someone who did or is doing the study, talking to their physician about the study, watching a video or reading a flyer about the study, or visiting a web page. They also had other write-in options in addition to circling choices, and which included some social media content, like following the study on Twitter, on a blog, seeing pictures about tests that are being done, and then somebody wrote in at house parties. <laughs> We're not going to try to IRB do that. Uh, so we used the survey to inform the components of our campaign. We call the campaign the Follow Your Heart campaign, and we work very closely with a graphic designer to develop our logo, um, and like I said, our video, we developed a video, website, <coughs> social media strategies, and educational information, flyers, etc., with a target audience of, of reaching out to women living with HIV, reprieve study site outreach coordinators, and staff at HIV community organizations. It resulted in the creation of a video based on the women's feedback that involves women from the community who share their stories. It's a four-minute long video, an overview of the reprieve trial including um, physicians and healthcare providers who talk a little bit about the importance of participation in clinical research. And then you can see sort of our flyer um, and our uh, logo and representation. All of this after we worked with the graphic designer, we brought back to the population of women so that they could, could let us know exactly what would work best for them or what was most appealing for them. Um, one of the things that they mentioned was when we had our first go around with this, 
we sort of just had the red ribbon in the corner. It had to be consistent with the reprieve red ribbon with the cardiac, um, the heart and the cardiac EKG uh, sign in the middle. But they said, you know, we're sick of looking at these flyers for HIV studies that just have this red ribbon. You know, you can make something pink, you can put a red, red uh, ribbon on it. But, you know, the fact of the matter is we've been living with this for a long time. We, we want something, that messaging that's empowering. We're taking hold of our illness. We're, we're going to the next level with this. We want to improve our health and wellness. We've come a long way. So based on their feedback, we made the silhouettes, and we put it in an urban setting. We kept the pink covers, colors because that was appealing, but we have that one woman holding the red ribbon above her head, resonating with the comment that they have a hold of their illness and they're living longer. So um, the reprieve trial, as well as the Follow Your Heart campaign and our um, specific study aim is currently implemented and ongoing, so that study uh, is still recruiting patients, and we look forward to the results uh, of that study in the future. So that basically concludes my presentation for today. Um, I hope it was helpful in providing an overview of cardiometabolic indices associated with HIV and future directions that are underway to help us better provide care to the aging population with the virus. Um, thank you very much for your time and attention, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. So have you got a sense of how well your campaign has drawn people in? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, so we have rolled up a campaign. It's been a year. This past April was one year. And we are measuring it as a study endpoint. So we're collecting data on um, amount of female enrollment at each site, et cetera. Um, but we do a lot of rollout uh, at study sites, as I mentioned, and at HIV community organizations. And anecdotally, it's going quite well. You know, it's nice. I, you know, obviously, we hope that it helps increase enrollment into Reprieve. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that I, I appreciate greatly when I see the live rollout and, and um, the reaction is that it's really increasing awareness. You know, a lot of women, I think, are learning about HIV and heart disease and their risk factors for it. And if anything, it's opened up a conversation. You know, they see the flyers. Some study sites have had Heart Health Month table with, you know, all the different flyers and all the different offerings. They play the video in their waiting room, et cetera. And it brings people over to say, what is this? What's follow your heart? What do you mean my risk for developing a heart attack as a woman with HIV is three times greater than somebody without? What do you mean by that? I never knew that. You know, so, you know, it also offers an opportunity, um, and the, our video is accessible on the Reprieve website, but um, the video, when we developed it, we really wanted to make sure that it um, hit on this peer-to-peer -peer learning, which seemed to be something that women identified as something that enhanced participation in a research study, learning about a study from a peer. Um, or somebody that um, had HIV also. So we recruited three women from the community who had been living with HIV for uh, 20 to 30 years. And we had the interview process for the video was I asked them a series of pre-populated questions to elicit unsolicited responses. So um, the questions asked about being a woman with HIV, their experience of um, participating in research studies. They weren't pre-trial participants. They're just from the community. So. What happens in the video is these women start out by sharing how long they've been living with the virus, the challenges that they've encountered of being a woman with HIV, have they put, why they participate in research, why they think it's important for um, other women to participate in research, what they know about heart disease. So I think it's been very relatable and very helpful so far. So, what's your what? Just can you give us a quick um, what the parameters for visits and things? Just we've 
We have a lot of women in Southern New Hampshire that are not that far from Boston. Yeah, sure. So um, the reprieve trial, so we don't have any study sites in New Hampshire. Yeah. So they would have to come to Massachusetts where there are- is it every six months or is it- Every six, so, you know, I'm trying to remember because I don't follow my patients. I'm not the study nurse, so I don't okay. see them in every single time that they come. But there's obviously like a baseline visit, and then I think in the beginning after they get the medication, they come back relatively frequently for safety visits. But then over the two-year period, it's stretched out longer over time. So, um, you know, I think that's an intimidating thing for people if you started out saying, okay, it's an almost three-year study, and then you're going to be followed for six years. Um, but really, net-net, it's not incredibly burdensome um, for women, to, for folks to come in. And each study site, because it's a... It's a funded study that it's a study that's funded by the NIH and L, um, NHLBI. Um, every study site designated it gets pockets of money, and then the study site designates how much they give for reimbursement, travel, stipend, etc. So that would be study site specific. Um, so that would be something that they could negotiate depending on what is convenient for them. If they were driving from New Hampshire or taking a bus to Cell Station, you know there are sites at Boston Medical, Tufts, MGH, Brigham like that. But there is part, the main reprieve website is incredibly helpful for patients, um, and the Follow Your Heart website is accessible from that, and it really has a bunch of um, FAQs, and if they don't have internet access, there's a 1-800 number, it's like 1-877 uh, number that they can call, I think that was on one of my slides, to get information, and that goes right to our clinical coordinating center, and so they answer questions, and then they can connect patients to a study site that might be um, proximal to their site, or proximal to the area that they'd like to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like to the broader theme about trying to educate patients and sort of bring them in on this risk reduction thing, even as we try to study various therapeutic interventions to actually lower risk, yeah. I think all of us who try to do this try to talk about modifiable risk factors and their relative importance, right? So yeah. if I'm speaking with a patient and they are 48 years old, they're menopausal, smoking with this family history of heart disease, these lipids, this blood pressure, right? All those things are sort of things that contribute to their risk profile. It seems like the science can help us more to refine these conversations by in part giving us some nice graphics, you know, and yeah. being able to say, look, a third, we can reduce your risk by a third by just getting to stop smoking or, or you yeah. know, sort of trying to think of ways to destroy to help, because I think uh, patients want to focus on, you, you can't control certain things. Right. What things can I control? Which of those things are more important than other things? Yeah. So are you asking? What, yeah, I mean, I wonder if you... So I think, I think, like, basically what I think, is just based on my own interactions, I when I have, start these conversations with patients, it's I don't think it's one size fits all. I think each person has different areas that they are going to want to target themselves or different priorities. And what I find in my conversations or exchanges with them is if I, if, if I share information, if I know, like say I had somebody who was coming with a presentation that you just you mentioned, right? perimenopausal, late 40s, smoking, et cetera, you know, I would say to them, what do you know about heart disease and HIV? And uh, if they started out by saying smoking, you know, I know smoking's really bad and I shouldn't do it. Uh, then I would say, you know, maybe start the conversation with smoking. Have you ever tried to quit smoking? Have you ever cut back on your smoking? Do you know that if you stop smoking, your risk for cardiovascular disease declines greater, not to the level of a non-smoker, but better than somebody who still continues to smoke? 
I also think that, you know, the interesting thing with women in this whole menopausal thing is that what I'm finding in my research when I, when I would bring them in, you know, because I was bringing them for research visits, you know, and so you have a little bit more time with people. And one of the big things I've learned in that study, what I wasn't even asking, is that most of these women with HIV didn't know what menopause was. And what I learned, I mean, most of these women I, who I see were from the Boston or not, you know, greater Boston area, that a lot of them had reported that a lot of female-associated life events were very negative experiences with them. So they might never have known their mother, and then they would ask, they got their period alone and were afraid to tell their grandmother or whoever was raising them. They might have had a teen pregnancy or sexual abuse. So it, a lot of times they never had conversations about general women's health. And so now as these women are aging and still having an infectious disease provider as their primary care provider, you have so many things as an ID provider that you're working to address that it's hard sometimes to say, oh, by the way, do you know what menopause is? Or do you, you know, so I, I tend to think that if we could keep things, like one of the things I've been thinking about recently, at least in the context of MGH, is if we could have information in the waiting area or that the nurse hands to them while they're waiting for the provider to come in the clinic room because it you know, might be able to start some conversations. But it is a lot of different variables, but how I usually start the conversation out is ask and seeing what they first mention. And, and you can tell in the exchanges, you know, just like when you give it a presentation, you can talk about certain things, you see some people glaze over, and then you can see some people look really eager. So you can see whatever they seem to be eager on might be the one to take it and run. But it's almost impossible to address all of them at one encounter and to expect they're going to absorb everything. No, I agree. And I, I, my point was just also that I think having some materials that actually help quantify that stuff for yeah. folks, I mean, the relative You're right. importance of things. Yeah. I, and, and I think we need some more science to actually describe that. Right. Like, what is the, how important is my LDL of 140 with these other risk factors? Risk. Yes. Yeah. Right? But it, it seems like often that ability not just to focus on a single thing, but to divide, have a pie chart and say, look, yeah. here are the really important things. Let, let's start there. Yeah, that, that would be, that would be the best and most effective. But I, yeah, I'm hoping that or we can get closer to some more concrete numbers for some of those right. relative risks. Right. And I agree with your approach. I think that would be the best, even that visual, because the visual learning is, which we've learned in our campaign too, is um, huge for this population. <coughs> Yeah. I couldn't help but notice that a lot of preventive factors seem very behavioral in nature. Right? Mental health issues, diet, exercise, that sort of thing. And so I imagine, I'm thinking of a patient coming to the doctor and they're having this discussion and like smoking kind of seems like the obvious thing that's maybe the most important one, but where those other things might not be so explicit, right? Or so right. clear or obvious. I can't remember the last time my doctor talked to me about nutrition. You know, right. Right? Yeah, I think, you know, I think by coming to presentations like this, you know, or Grand Rounds, et cetera, you, you know, it exposes you to a wider menu of things that need to be discussed with patients. Um, you know, I think every institution has different ways of doing this. I know at my last um, primary care visit at MGH for the first time, when I sat down in the waiting room, there was like a hot pink cover sheet, and it was like, are you experiencing, in the last two weeks, have you experienced any of the following? Depression, problems sleeping, not having enough money to buy food. You know, it was like a whole gambit of mental health and social, kind of similar to that um, slide I had. And I said, wow, 
That's pretty good. I thought that was actually a very good example because when you are a healthcare provider and you're bringing people in, you know, you, you have such a limited, you have so many competing demands and such a limited slot that you're more um, focused on what you need to address in that visit. If it's a sick visit, it's diagnostic, assessment, diagnosis, treatment. If it's a general well visit, um, you know, it's, it's just looking at follow-up and preventions and, you know, mammogram, things like that. But I kind of thought that that top sheet was actually very helpful because then the doctor took that when I sat down and, and, and saw it. If I had not checked any of them, then just went to the, you know, recycling. But if I had, that she would have said, oh, you're having problems sleeping. Tell me more about this. So I thought that was just a very quick and easy way to prompt um, folks that might have a lot of competing demands or maybe knowledge deficit to think more broadly about the person in front of them. And I think that, in general, as mentioned, um, you know, we see infectious disease providers as for these patients who have had HIV for a long time, almost as primary care providers now. And so it's a lot, it's a lot for folks to remember and think of and tackle. So I think there's going to be a need, particularly as we see more people age with the virus, for more things like that. Because it's nobody's fault. It's just way too much information to be responsible for. <coughs> complex patients with complex needs getting specialty service. So I think we're going to have to get creative and innovative interprofessionally to think of ways to prompt these questions and address these issues. All right. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.